Steve Ostad is a pioneer in the field of aging, with over 200 scientific papers and book chapters on pretty much every aspect of biological aging that you could think of. He's also a strong believer in the potential for anti-aging therapies. And he's the type of person who puts his money where his mouth is. In 2001, Steve made a billion-dollar bet with another researcher, Jay Olshansky, that the first person to reach 150 years old had already been born. I had a chance to talk with Steve for today's podcast and asked if he still thinks that that bet was a good idea. In addition to having one of the cooler titles that I've heard of as the Protective Life Endowed Chair in Health Aging Research and being a distinguished professor and chair of the Department of Biology at the University of Alabama, Birmingham, Steve is founding director of UAB's Nathan Schock Center of Excellence in the Basic Biology of Aging and senior scientific director of the American Federation for Aging Research, which is managing a groundbreaking longevity research trial that just started this year. Steve is also a great science communicator with five books, including one that comes out this year, Methuselah's Zoo, which I highly recommend, and he publishes prolifically in national media outlets. I'm Matt Fuchs. This is the Making Sense of Science podcast. Hi, Steve. Thanks for joining the Making Sense of Science podcast. It's great to be talking with you. Well, thank you. It's nice to be here. So you have a book coming out in August called Methuselah's Zoo. And one thing I really appreciate from listening to you give talks and write prolifically over the years is what a great storyteller you are. And I've heard you tell what I'll call the lion story uh, a number of times where you traveled cross country with a lion in a truck uh, before you became a scientist. And each time I'm amazed when I hear that story, I don't uh, never get tired of hearing it. Uh, but in Methuselah Zoo, you um, talk about a different story. And I, I think you open with it. Uh, it's uh, about opossum number nine. Would you be able to share your experience with opossum number nine as you described it in your new book, helping lead to your interest in studying aging? Sure, I'd be happy to. So Opossum number nine was the ninth opossum that I had put a radio collar on in Venezuela. So I was working at a biological field station down there, not working on opossums, but something else. Uh, But a friend of mine uh, was studying foxes, but he was having no luck because his his live traps kept getting filled up with opossums. So we decided to do an opossum study as a kind of side project for both of us. And what struck me, and and this had nothing to do with aging, uh, but what struck me was every month I would recapture all of the possums that I had radio collars on, and I would give them a little physical exam. I was mainly looking at at whether they had uh, young in their pouch, because opossums are marsupials. And what was striking about opossum number nine is that um, she had cataracts, and she had serious cataracts in both eyes. And I've always assumed the cataracts was a sign of aging. Uh, And then as I examined her more closely, I noticed that she had lost muscle mass, that she seemed to have a lot of uh, parasites. When I let her go, she kind of tottered. She didn't really walk as she had before. And I had captured the same opossum three months earlier, and she had been in perfect condition, a perfectly fit, healthy young adult. And yet here she was three months later looking uh, like a very aged female. And that astonished me because I had always assumed that because opossums were about the same size as house cats, that they would age kind of like a house cat. That is, they would become old maybe in their, in their teens. Um, but here I knew uh, opossum number nine was only about 18 months old, and here she was falling apart <laughs> physically. And that observation just struck me so vividly that it awakened my interest in why certain animal species age quickly and others age slowly, even though they may seem from the outside to be very similar to one another. Yeah, and that, that's true of humans too, I, I suppose. Absolutely, uh, yeah. And, and, and in fact, I was immediately thinking, well, now that I've seen this opossum, aren't 
now that I think about it, our pets age more quickly than than we do. And why is that? Is there some um, is there some evolutionary mystery to that that I that I need to try to figure out? Uh, the interesting thing is the opossum project I was working on ended up being published in one of the most prestigious uh, journals in the in in the world. But by the time it was published, I completely lost interest in that project, and I move on to try to figure out what aging was all about. And since then, you and other researchers have made some amazing, what I would describe as amazing breakthroughs in understanding the biology of aging, um, although we still have uh, a ways to go, I think you would agree, in figuring out you know exactly what the mechanisms are and the, you know the sort of the what's behind the uh, cause of aging. Um, but I wanted to ask about you know speaking of your storytelling and creative ways to capture the public's imagination, uh, you made a very interesting bet with another researcher, Jay Olshansky, in two thousand one, that I think a lot of people. Um, found to be sort of a fascinating prospect of the first person to reach 150 years old already being alive. And you uh, you were on the side of that bet uh, saying that you think the first person to be uh, to live to 150 years old had already been born in 2001. And so I'm curious if you, do you still think that that's the case? Do you think that uh, you win that bet? And is there anyone out there who's catching your eye as the person who's most likely to do it? Ah, well, that's uh, very interesting. So here we are some 20 years on from the initiation of that bet. And, and I have to say, I'm still quite confident uh, that I'm going to win the bet, even though, in all fairness, I should point out that the oldest person to ever live in 2001 was 122 and a half years. And here in 2022, the oldest person to ever live is still 122 and a half years. So there's been no obvious um, improvement, but the fact is that the number of people that are 100 years old or older is growing rapidly. It's the fastest growing demographic uh, that we have. And I think that ultimately that's gonna translate into more 110 year olds and more 120 year olds. The interesting thing about that bet, and the reason that it was 150 years, is that both Jay and I agreed that traditional medical progress, you know, getting better at early diagnosis and better treatments of uh, uh, the primary diseases of aging, was not going to get us to 150 years. That what was going to get us to 150 years was somehow being able to intervene and actually slow down the aging process. And since that bet was made, the number of ways that we are capable of doing this in animals, in experimental animals, not in humans, we don't have the data yet, uh, has grown in incredibly uh, fast. And so I'm convinced that some of those breakthroughs in our experimental animals will translate uh, to people and that ultimately we will find ways to slow the aging process, which would be the greatest medical breakthrough probably since the invention of antibiotics. Yeah, I suppose the, the pool of people who could uh, break that record of 122 seems to be expanding and then combine that with these therapeutics that seem to be, you know, hopefully on their way. I noticed that you did not respond to the facetious sort of part of my question about who's catching your eye as the first person to... I, I, I was thinking maybe David Sinclair. He, he seems like he's, he's looking pretty good. Um, he's, he's told me how much he likes cold water plunges at the gym, four degrees Celsius for five minutes. And so, you know, if that doesn't kill him, maybe it'll make him stronger. Uh, I'm quite confident, Matt, that it's not going to be David Sinclair. And, and I'll tell you <laughs> why. Um, he's a man. <laughs> Men do not live as long as women. And uh, so that's a huge disadvantage. So those of us with a Y chromosome uh, have. So I'm quite convinced that the first... 150-year-old will, will be a woman for sure, um, and most likely I'm thinking a Japanese woman because those are the that's the longest live group of people in the world right now with a life expectancy of about 88 years, and the most common age that, that Japanese women die at is in the early 90s. Um, so uh, I'd have to put my money on them. Much as I, 
uh, would like it to be David because he's a good friend. Uh, I just uh, he's got this this huge handicap, which is being a male. Yeah, well, he can still break the male the male record for longevity. So. Yeah, he, could, he could. That's uh, I believe 116. So it's quite a bit less. You know, the top uh, 12 oldest people ever are all women. Um, maybe more. So this is why I'm thinking it's going to be a woman. Yeah. And I want to get into those sex differences. But before we, we leave this, uh, this, this prospect of someone leave, living to 150, um, I wanted to ask one more question about sort of emotionally. Um, is this something that you're a 100% rooting for? And I'll, I'll put the question in the context of something that Elon Musk said nine days ago. He said, I don't think we should try to have people live for a really long time. It would cause asphyxiation of society because the truth is most people don't change their mind. They just die. So if they don't die, we will be stuck with old ideas and society wouldn't advance. Now, I love Elon, but at this point, he's obviously just saying the opposite of what every other tech entrepreneur says and thinks, as we've seen this with his comments about AI. Uh, now we're seeing it with longevity. But that all said, does does he kind of have a point? Are there any compelling ethical or practical concerns about the prospect of therapies enabling longevity of, say, 150 or even uh, 200 years? So I have to say... Uh to Elon, uh, that's a very old-fashioned idea you have, Elon. Um, the assumption is that as people get older, they get more uh, settled in their ways. But if we can actually intervene in the aging process and slow it down, there's no reason that someone in their uh, 130s uh, could not have the mental agility of someone in their 40s or 50s today. I think there is this idea, and, and, and you run into this a lot with the people who think that this is the worst thing in the world would be to make people live longer, is they're assuming that, that we would just, people would be pretty much the same, we would just keep them alive in a more and more and more decrepit state. But that's not what we're talking about at all. In fact, no one, I think, would be in favor of that. What we're really talking about is enhancing and preserving health. And if we can do that, it's hard to see if, he, if, if, if Elon could have the health at 130 that he has today and the mental agility and get rid of some of these old-fashioned ideas he has about aging, then, then, then I think he might change his mind. Yeah, I don't think I have a feeling he wouldn't say no to 130. Um, <laughs> that could be maybe that's another bet you could make. Um, so I did want to uh, talk uh, about sex differences in longevity, which we've already touched upon. So one of the many fascinating areas that you've studied is the differences between men and women and how long they live with females winning that particularly important battle of the sexes um, when it comes to humans, uh, but also other animals. You've noted, however, that uh, uh, women, even though they live longer, experience more morbidity as they age, and that humans may be unique in this regard. What's the best theory at this point that can help to explain that paradox? Well, that, that's, that is a, a, a paradox for sure. I think understanding the uh, extra human longevity, that female longevity, may be an easier go than understanding uh, the morbidity. So th there's a couple of uh, hypotheses for why women, sort of universally, and I mean this is something that doesn't just happen uh, when women get older that they survive better. They survive better uh, when they're younger as well, in fact, even prenatally, uh, being a male a uh, prematurely born infant is considered to be a, a risk uh, relative to being a female. So I think that that likely has to do with the fact that we have one X chromosome. Males have one X chromosome, the sex-determining chromosome. Males have an X and a Y, but females have two Xs. Now, the important factor of that is that females have basically a backup copy of every gene that's on the X chromosome, and males don't. So that if we have, and we all inherit some genes that predispose us to one disease or the other, but if males don't have a, if, if those genes happen to be on the X chromosome and males don't have a backup, then 
they're going to be in trouble. Whereas women can have uh, th those genes, but those genes can simply be selected out over time. And one of the interesting things is that in every cell of a woman's body, one or the other copies of that X chromosome is, is turned off. And it's, it's random which one is turned off. But the interesting thing is as women age, one of those X chromosomes, either the one that they inherited from their mother or the one that they inherited from their father, starts to predominate and starts to become more and more common in tissues and one becomes less and less common. And it's difficult to avoid the conclusion that the body, their bodies are somehow preserving the better of the X chromosomes and gradually getting rid of the, of the worse X chromosomes, something that men do not have the capability of, of doing. So I think that provides a pretty good explanation of why women live longer. It doesn't really explain why women are more commonly, have more functional problems, more difficulties walking, lifting things and all as they get older. That has to do with the fact that they, uh, first of all, they, they don't have their, their peak amount of muscle strength. Now we all lose muscle strength as we get older, but women on average start from a, a lower level of muscle strength. Now, of course, there's lots of variation about that and there are women that are much stronger than some men, but on average, women are starting from a less peak muscle mass so that as we lose it uh, over time, uh, they're more likely to reach the time of life when they don't have the strength, the muscle strength to do a lot of the things that they used to do. Combined with that is that women are more prone to joint problems. And I think that may actually have something to do with the fact with childbirth um, because the certain ligaments in the pelvis have to loosen up for, in order for the baby to get out there. So the women have to have this mechanism for sort of loosening their, their, uh, the stability of their joints when they give rise to children. But on the, the long-term consequence of that may be that they have more joint problems uh, that are not related to childbirth when they get older. And, and, and it's true that women athletes get more ligament tears and all than men athletes. So it's, 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 I, I think it's that, just that joint problem. Um, that's the main reason for the disability. It's, it's, it's the lower strength, lower peak strength, and then we all lose strength. And then the joint issues. Now I have to say about the strength issue is that one of the things we've found in recent years is that you can improve strength even into very late age. There are people that have started lifting weights in their 90s and you'd be surprised how fast they can build muscle strength when they do that. Now these are people that probably haven't done a lot of weightlifting before their 90s, but um, our bodies continue to respond to, to beneficial signals much later than we ever expected. And is the link to morbidity there when we talk about maybe declining joint health and strength, is it that women, if they are experiencing those problems, they might be less able to participate in exercise and other things that are health protective? And so some of the additional um, comorbidities that they might experience are downstream from those limitations uh, if they're not able to, I don't know, walk around as much as they would otherwise. Yeah, well, I mean, once it gets to that point, uh, that's certainly true. Um, but I think I, I think beyond that, just the the lack of uh, you know the lower strength and the more joint problems make it difficult to do what we consider non strenuous activity. But non strenuous activity turns out to be quite health promoting. But things like bending, you know, and crouching, and uh, lifting, you know, lifting a, a you know a bag of sugar or something like that at a certain point, you know, for people who have not been physically active, particularly their whole lives, that becomes a, a challenge. You know, opening, uh, opening a, a, a screw top lid uh, becomes a challenge and a particular problem if you have arthritis in the joints of your fingers and women are more prone uh, to arthritis as well. And you noted, I think I read in your study, one of, one of your uh, studies, 
about an amazing experiment in which female mice with two X chromosomes were genetically engineered to have male reproductive organs, but nevertheless, they still won the longevity battle of the sexes. And I'm, I'm curious, is, is this, you know, this, uh, two X chromosome issue that you've talked about, is that, are some of these benefits, um, or, you know, detriments to long-term health, like oxidative stress and inflammation, are they sort of, um, are you seeing the two X chromosomes as being protective of those particular factors? Or is the, is there a different mechanism that you would see behind the oxidative stress and the inflammation? Well, I mean, there's, there's a couple things going on there. So you're right about, about that study in, in mice, at least having an extra X chromosome is beneficial to health, even if you have a male uh, gonads, because we have managed to uh, manipulate mice to do that. Um, there's one impact, this is the impact of, of, of female hormones, and estrogen we know is anti-inflammatory and protective of a lot of things, neuroprotective for one thing. But there seems to be more to it than just that, because um, it seems like the X chromosome is beneficial, even if you get rid of the hormones. Having that extra set X, now that's a very gene-rich chromosome. We have, you know, a couple thousand genes on the X chromosome, and those are very important. So having a backup copy in case if some of those genes are compromised over time or, or compromised at inheritance, I think that plays a lot into it. And there's one other thing. Uh, and that is that we may know that the Y chromosome may have some health detriments as well. So it may be that having not only is having an extra X good, but having even one Y is not so good because we know that the Y has us doing certain crazy things when we're young. Uh, there's this period from about age 15 to 30 that I call testosterone dementia, uh, where the you know the difference between male and female mortality is dramatically enhanced because males are out there doing crazy stuff. So um, the fact that it makes us do crazy stuff may not be the only uh, bad thing that it does for us. Yeah, the uh, the stereotype of the the teenage boy driving 120 miles an hour down the highway to his, impress his prospective girlfriends definitely. Uh, I can see how that can accelerate mortality. Um, I did want to ask also about the impact of the pandemic in in the the context of this issue. You wrote a few years ago, I think it was in March 2019, about research in 2018 that found that women survive better during severe famines and epidemics. Your comments there have proved prophetic uh, during the pandemic. Do you think that the pandemic will increasingly widen the gap between men and women in the coming years and this, uh, you know, differences in longevity? Clearly men having higher mortality is going to widen the gap in and of itself, but men also have worse COVID severity on average. So I'm curious about the long-term health consequences of that driving even greater differences. It's an interesting thought, and it wouldn't surprise me be just just because men respond to infectious diseases uh, more poorly than women do uh, for all kinds of infectious diseases. So I guess the question is for all the people that have gotten it, how many are uh, men versus how many women are going to have long COVID, and then what? how serious are the effects of long COVID going to be? We don't have an answer to that yet, of course, but if I had to bet, I would certainly bet on on it being worse for men than it is for women because that's a general pattern for other infectious diseases. Yeah, that's that'll be an interesting thing to to watch. Um, we've talked about you know differential risk taking behavior among men, uh, but I, I guess you know so along the lines of behavior and lifestyle more generally, you know, things that apply to both men and women. I've heard you talk about the importance of exercise in living a long, healthy life. And I think that I've heard you speak about personally working out frequently with heavy exertion. 
I wanted to ask, do you agree with the guidelines that people should get at least 50 minutes, uh, sorry, 150 minutes per week of moderate intensity exercise? And I'm not suggesting they should, you know, it would be less than that, but should the minimum floor be higher than that? Because I've seen other studies showing increased benefits for harder and more frequent workouts than would be suggested by the 150-minute guidelines. Though we also know that too much exertion may have negative impacts over a lifetime. What do you think is the sweet spot for people wanting to work out for optimal longevity? Yeah, I, my suspicion is that 150 minutes of moderate activity or, or 75 minutes a week of, of heavy physical activity are probably underestimates. Um, but I don't know how, how much. Um, and it also depends on, on, on what you're measuring. You know, if you're measuring longevity, the answer might be one thing. If you're measuring later life health, the ability to stay independent, it, it may be a slightly different answer. Uh, we don't know yet, but certainly, I mean, one of the uh, penalties of, of over-exercise is injury. And of course, when you're injured, you cannot exercise as hard. And so this is kind of a vicious circle. I'm actually dealing with a, with a knee injury right now, which has got me very, which I, which I got uh, lifting heavy leg weights. And uh, I'm, I'm now uh, wondering if uh, I was overdoing it. Well, uh, I wish you a fast recovery. And I've, I've definitely been there with knee injuries a number of times in my life. Uh, but ideally, uh, and maybe factoring in the, the, this lesson learned that you have from your recent knee injury, what would be the you know amount of times that you think is uh, most beneficial to be working out? Maybe like how many minutes per week, and you know how how many times lifting weights per week? Well, I I, I don't typically. Uh, give answers to things that I don't know about. And I don't think anybody knows about this, but I think it's an interesting question. I think we need to know this. The other thing we need to know is what the relative benefits are of, of, of I don't like to call it exercise. I prefer to call it physical activity because I think pe when people think of exercise, they think of something that they're doing simply for the health benefits and not for the enjoyment. Um, and think of people dripping sweat across the floor. And it may turn out that you get just as good a boost from a more leisurely walk than you do from this, anything to get your heart rate up. But the other thing I think we don't know about is the relative benefits of uh, endurance exercise versus resistance exercise, basically walking versus or jogging versus lifting weights. And one of the reasons we don't know more about that is we really don't have good animal models to study it in. We, we, we can give rats and mice an exercise wheel or we can put them on a treadmill and make them run and we can learn a lot about the physiology of exercise from that. But in terms of resistance exercise, weightlifting, we don't really have good ways to, to have them do that. So we're sort of thrown on that most uh, uh, ineffective of research animals, which is humans. Um, because there we can't really tell people what to eat. We can't control all of the other things. But we certainly know that resistance exercise has some, some benefits. What we don't know is the relative weight of those benefits uh, versus the benefits of aerobic exercise. And that, that's a really active area of research and something that we need to know more about. Because one of the striking things that we've learned in the past few years, and I nobody anticipated this, I don't think, is the cognitive benefits of exercise or physical activity. But in fact, that's one of the best dementia preventatives we know about. And who would have guessed that there was this relationship between the muscles and lungs and the brain uh, like there appears to be? Right. And along the lines of you mentioned, you know, distinguishing from exercise and preferring to call it physical activity, it makes me think about this 105-year-old sprinter, Julia Hawkins, who I uh, had an opportunity to write about last year, who set the world record for 100-meter uh, <laughs> sprinting. She, and she actually sprints. She's 105 years old, and you see the video. And she's, uh, she's really running out there on the track. And so I, I asked her about the longevity strategies that she's pursued over a lifetime and, you know, that have contributed to 
her, uh, her longevity. And she said gardening is her, her number one, you know, thing. She doesn't really focus on exercise, but she gets, uh, you know, a heck of a lot of physical activity and, and she, now she's sprinting as a 105 year old. So, you know, that there's a lot to be said, to be said for that distinction. Yeah, there might, there might be a lesson there. So, so gardening is probably not a form of physical activity that there's a lot of associated injuries with. So it may be that her gardening prevented her from getting injured. So she didn't reach the age of 105 with a bunch of ruined, with ruined shoulders, ruined knees and all. Um, it's, it's very true that, that um, you do see, um, you don't see rather, uh, extreme exercisers in the oldest size uh, age categories. You know, there are very few centenarians that have been extreme exercisers their whole life. And one of the interesting things about, uh, I guess this would be a journalist perspective uh, uh, like, like you, Matt, is that you, you interview these people that do these incredible accomplishments. And I mean, running 100 meters at age 105 is about as incredible an accomplishment as I can imagine, is that, you know, people think they got there because of what they particularly did, but it may have been genes, it may have been luck. Uh, I know the best study that I know of, of healthy centenarians, which is done by my friend uh, near Barcelai. If you looked at those people and you, you compared them to the average population, they're very much average. I mean, some are obese and some are not. Some were exercised for their whole lives and some have hardly ever done it. Some smoked and most haven't. Uh, it turns out that they look a great deal like the rest of society. It's just that they don't get the same diseases that we do or they get them 30 years later than we do. And we'd really like to know how they do that. Well, if we could figure that out, it probably would uh, help quite a bit with identifying therapies that can sort of mimic whatever advantages they have going on biologically. Um, and speaking of near, I wanted to ask you about TAME. This, for our listeners, is the Targeting Aging with Metformin Trial. It's a series of nationwide clinical trials to uncover how metformin affects the health and longevity of over 3,000 people between ages 65 and 79. And this very important work is managed by the American Federation for Aging Research that you help lead. And I'd love to hear from you why TAME is so groundbreaking. And it'd be great to hear about the experience of being at the castle in the Spanish countryside with other longevity experts, uh, basically the, the kings and queens of longevity, uh, deciding how the most uh, strategic approach for this trial and deciding which drug uh, was the most important uh, one uh, to focus it on. Yeah, so, so, so I love to talk about this because this was such an unusual experience. So a group of us, about 30 of us, got together on, in this Spanish castle, you know, from the 17th century, I believe it was, very remote part of Spain, and we basically were isolated for a, a long weekend with the goal of coming up with the first human trial of a drug that extends health and life. And uh, we basically locked ourselves in and, and debated back and forth. And, and in fact, I was in favor of a drug called rapamycin because that was the drug that's been the most successful in, in mice. It's, it's really done remarkable things, not just extending life, but enhancing immune function and, and strength and cognition and all kinds of things. So I thought this really should be the first one uh, to try. And I was ultimately uh, voted down uh, by the assembled uh, masses, which by the way, wasn't just basic researchers by myself, but it was also physicians. And what they pointed out and what really eventually changed my mind and convinced me that metformin was the way to go is that uh, metformin has, you know, it's the most popular anti-diabetes drug in the world. And it's people have been taking it in huge numbers for 60 years. And so we have, it's very well described uh, safety profile. And the last thing that we wanted to do was start the first human trial of a, of a longevity drug and have some people die from it. And with rapamycin, rapamycin has mainly been given to people who are already very sick. 
And so there's a lot less background information on the side effects. And, you know, one of the things that we know is something that works in mice, you know, we do most of our research in mice with all these mice that are genetically identical. Once you start working with humans who are genetically diverse and have grown up with all kinds of environments, you oftentimes find side effects that you never suspected uh, in the animals. So ultimately, we're convinced that this drug that's already been taken by so many people for their diabetes uh, was the best first candidate and also the most compelling. It was the only drug that we talked about that already had some pretty interesting evidence for humans. And that evidence was a study in which they compared um, longevity in people that were taking metformin because they had type 2 diabetes and they were taking it to treat their diabetes uh, with non-diabetics that were matched for age and occupation and socioeconomic class, all the standard things that you control for in these sorts of studies. Uh, But in fact, the people that were diabetic but taking metformin to control it were living longer than the people that were not diabetic. And that was a striking result because diabetes mimics many of the symptoms of accelerated aging. In fact, a friend of mine years ago sort of sat down and calculated to look at all the things that changed with age and then all the things that changed with various diseases and, and came up with the idea that diabetes, uncontrolled diabetes was the the best mimic of accelerated aging, more than progeria the, or some of the, you know, the kids with the, that look like old people. And so the, the fact that they came up with that result is so striking that it made us all think, well, here's a drug that's safe, it's inexpensive, and that was also a consideration because we went to the FDA to try to get them to agree that if we did the right kind of experiment, they might approve it to combat aging. And now, we couldn't really say it that way to the FDA because they're, they don't consider aging a disease and you have to talk to them in disease terms. But what we did say is, what if we had a drug that simultaneously uh, prevented or delayed uh, dementia and cardiovascular disease and cancer? Would you approve that? And they said, Yes, in theory we would if you did the right kind of clinical trial, and that's how the TAME trial came to be, was basically we had gone to the FDA asking for their input on what they would consider a drug to combat these multiple diseases, because we couldn't say aging. Um, and, and the reason that the inexpensive part of it was important is that we didn't want the FDA thinking, we're in this to make a buck. We wanted them to think this is this is pure, this is purely altruistic, that we're not doing this to increase the health of our bank accounts because it's off patent. You know, it's as it's as cheap as aspirin, and, um, and so that was the genesis of the Tame trial. And and can you share an update on the latest status of Tame? Latest, well, it's you know because uh, it's it's off patent and nobody stands to make a great deal of money. It's been a challenge uh, to get it funded, and so it's just getting underway now. NIR has just uh, finally managed to corral the funding necessary to do this. And of course, we're going to be looking at these three diseases that I just mentioned, but we're also going to be looking at a whole host of other things. How does this affect hearing loss, muscle loss, um, compromised vision, all all the other things that are attendant on aging that we can't do efficiently to please the FDA, but that we can um, find out, is this really the drug that attacks the underlying aging processes, which is the kind of drug, this is the grail of aging research, is the drug that hits the underlying process of aging and by doing so prevents all of these maladies of old age as a group. And speaking of all of the effects of aging, what are the advantages of focusing research on cocktails versus individual molecules for any disease, really? I mean, I was just talking with Percy Griffin of the Alzheimer's Association, where he was touting cocktails for Alzheimer's, given all of the different um, biological mechanisms that seem to be involved in that disease. But maybe they're especially uh, cocktails are especially important to address the multiple hallmarks of aging. That's, a, that's an interesting point. I think you're exactly right about that. 
One of the things that we know is basically all medications, if they're going to work, are going to have side effects. And, you know, we choose those medications in which the side effects are much less serious than whatever they're designed to treat. But sometimes you might add a second drug to combat the side effects of the first. And the, or you might combine two drugs because some really hit some aging process but not others, and another would. I think a, a good example is the fact that, a, in mice at least, a combination of rapamycin and metformin were, was especially effective at making mice live longer because one of the effects of uh, rapamycin is that it can predispose towards diabetes and metformin is an excellent, excellent treatment for diabetes. And so it may be that that's the kind of combinations that are going to prove to be most effective. Certainly, I think it's going to be some kind of combinations. We're not going to find a single magic bullet that's suddenly going to make us live to 150. Certainly a complicated uh, endeavor, and I enjoyed your essay on interpreting health news like a pro. In that article, you scrutinized an article that talked up a study on the benefits of four-second bursts of exercise. And you explained that the actual study, if you you know go and read it, found basically no differences in death rates between people getting the short bursts and the control group after five years. So first of all, I was relieved to read your article because I have no idea how to exercise for four seconds. It takes me it takes me at least 30 minutes just to fiddle around with my shoes and my headphones, getting ready to work out at the gym. So thank you. That, that was a weight off my shoulders. Uh, one of your uh, main recommendations in that article is that people actually read the study. But, you know, I think just practically speaking, people... A lot of people are just not going to do that. You know, maybe 99% of people won't take the time to read the study. Are there any news outlets out there that you'd recommend for their work in accurately representing scientific research, uh, maybe more often than not? And I also wanted to ask, you know, kind of related to that, um, during COVID, you know, a lot of newspapers have beefed up their health and science news desks. I'm curious if you have noticed, do you think that... Um, you know, the, the extra resources that are going to coverage of COVID, but also other health issues. Do you think the pandemic has driven any improvements in science reporting? I'm afraid I probably don't. I think there's some very good science reporting, as there has always been. But I think expanding it has um, got into it a lot of uh, journalists that don't really understand the science. Uh, but are, but are being asked to cover it anyway. And when I say understand the science, I'm not really talking about understanding, you know, experimental details, but understanding the different types of studies with the difference between a experimental study and an observational study, understanding the importance of, of proper control groups, understanding these things. There are, uh, there are some outlets that are absolutely uh, fantastic. I mean, uh, the New York Times. I actually think the Washington Post, not to uh, not to pander too much, does a, an excellent job. The New Scientist is one of my favorite places. National Public Radio. Um, these are these are venues that the reporters understand the science in a, in a big way and are also excellent uh, communicators. But I do think that the general public. There are a few tips. You know, that it's not that hard to recognize what sort of study. It's being done. Is it an experimental study that is a clinical trial, or is it an observational study? An observational study where they tracked people over time. Experiments are basically the the, the basis of, of pretty much all solid knowledge, so those are always preferable. Um, so I think there are ways that we can train people to read the health news intelligently and. And journalists particularly, because obviously, even if you weren't trained in science, you don't have to be a science to understand it. If someone will explain to you a few simple rules of thumb, things to look for. And I think one of the most important things that, that you, you want to pay attention to in, in journalism is have they talked to people that don't like to study? You know, I, I think it's important to hear from uh, the other side. I have to say during COVID, even, you know, following as many scientists as I do on, on, on Twitter, there, there's been a lot of um, leaping to conclusions. You know, this kind of opened the, 
the, the can to show us how the sausage is made because, you know, a lot of times the early results that look uh, kind of compelling turn out in the longer term not to be uh, so compelling. And you really see science sort of groping towards the truth. It's not a direct, you know, line from, 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 uh, from the present to the truth. It's, it's a groping and gradually getting closer to it. So if you're really watching how progress in COVID has been made, I think it's been a great revelation into how science works. I mean, the fact that within less than a year, we had a, a vaccine against this brand new disease is as good a testament to the incredible science that we are capable of now as anything that I can imagine. And that's a great segue to my last question. Um, you, know, you talk about experiments really being what to look for um, as far as you know significance in studies and you know breakthroughs and experiments in humans uh, in the realm of aging are really what we're looking for. And I think you know increasingly as research proceeds on biological aging clocks that will. Uh, you know, increase our ability to do experiments in humans in the realm of longevity. And I've heard you talk a number of times about Manhattan projects for aging and the, the need for a moonshot or a Manhattan project aimed at finding therapies for aging. Commentators like William Kalin, a Nobel laureate in cancer research, argue that moonshots work best only after we know enough about the basic science of a problem because moonshots should have, uh, focus on applying the basic science to an engineering problem. And people like you certainly have led incredible progress in longevity research, but I'm curious if you think that we know enough about the basic science of aging to hand it off to the quote-unquote engineers at this point for a Manhattan project for anti-aging therapies. So, so I think yeah, that's an interesting point. I think I'm using a, a, a moonshot in a slightly different manner. Uh, well, I'm thinking of a moonshot or a, a Manhattan project is basically the focusing of a great deal of attention on an issue by the top scientists and, and directing a lot of money at it, not really thinking we're at the point where, ah, we know the answer. All we ne need to do now is design uh, something to implement the answer. I think when I say uh, we need a Manhattan Project, I simply mean we need a, a lot of talent and a lot of money thrown at this um, because the ultimate goal is something that we now know is doable. We have had enough success in our experimental animals to know that the ultimate goal of extending health substantially is doable. We just now, now know have to, to figure out what is the best way to do that. And the best way to figure that out is have a bunch of very smart people free to do a lot of very innovative experimentation in order to figure it out. I, I, you know, I don't think that this can be highly organized, but I do think there are times that we need to sit back and we need to say, okay, we've had all these individual investigators approaching this problem from all these different angles. Let's assess where we were and see if there's some rational forward place to go, that we should now coordinate our efforts. I, I think that's when we go from the Manhattan Project to the maybe the moonshot analogy is when we say, aha, now we know what direction to go in. Now let's go for it. Right. That, that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, we've seen a lot of promising movement in the private sector on putting funding toward researching aging. Over the last few years, we've had some very high-profile private investments in longevity research with, you know, Jeff Bezos and Peter Thiel, you know, investing in Unity Biotechnology. And then Google formed its uh, Calico. And then we've got Larry Ellison donating hundreds of millions of dollars to, to aging research. Um, so it'll be interesting to see. I mean, I, I, I sort of perceive those investments as promising, but um, maybe a, a drop in the bucket, uh, perhaps, compared to you know, what might be possible through um, NIH and, you know, if, if ARPA-H uh, uh, takes off, uh, hopefully, uh, you know, President Biden's proposed agency for health innovation, uh, the Advanced Research Projects Agency for Health, 
Uh, that that would be amazing, I think, if ARPA-AH could prioritize research on aging. Um, since cancer and Alzheimer's, you know, at the end of the day, they're, they're just diseases of aging. Um, so uh, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. We're kind of running up against the uh, the end of our time frame here, but. Um, I just have I have a quick thought about that, which is I very much uh, welcome the private investment, not just because it adds to the size of the pie, although I think that's important, but it's you're right, it's a drop in the bucket to what the National Institute of Health could do if it, it chose. But the key thing about that is that is the innovation part of it, that the private investors are not so much constrained by the conservatism of the National Institutes of Health, which, you know, having sent on a lot of those review panels to review grants, they really, the kind of things that get funded there are mostly incremental. A great deal of innovation is not usually uh, fundable, but the private sector, they're up to pursuing a lot of wild and crazy ideas, and a lot of those wild and crazy ideas are going to turn out to be wild and crazy ideas, but if only a handful of those turned out to be wild and insightful ideas, then we're going to benefit from it. Fascinating. Steve, it's been amazing speaking with you. I'm a huge fan of your work, and I really appreciate you making time to join the Making Sense of Science podcast. I wish you all the best with TAME and with uh, recovering from your your knee injury, uh, hopefully very soon. All right. Thanks a lot, Matt. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thanks for listening to the Making Sense of Science podcast. If you like the show and you want to hear more from the best thinkers of our time to help make sense of the latest health innovations and their impact on our rapidly changing world, please hit the follow button. And in the meantime, please visit our online magazine at leaps.org, where you can read in-depth articles examining health breakthroughs through the lens of rational optimism. Enjoy the leaps.org platform, and I hope you take care. Until next time.